Hello, I'm Alex Rakeen, a barrister third in Essex Chamber specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined in the shed this morning or, or this evening, depending on who you're talking to, uh, by Dr. Julia Duffy. Um, anyone who's ever heard me do one of these before or seen me do one of these before will know I actually don't like introducing the person I'm speaking to at all. I much prefer the person I'm talking to to introduce themselves. So, Julia, over to you. Introduce yourself, please, to us. Hi, Alex. I'm a research fellow with the Australian Centre for Health Law Research in Brisbane this morning. And uh, in that role, I'm doing uh, an investigator on several consultancies with government and non-government organisations doing work on support decision-making and client voice and substitute decision-making and human rights frameworks. And it was as well as doing a bit of my own research on related topics. And just, just sort of how did you get to that? I mean, just, you know, what, what's brought you to this yeah. point? Yeah, well, that's right. I've had a quite a long career in government as a government lawyer and policy advisor and policy developer, as well as a senior manager. I've been in various portfolios, but the one that really got me to this one was when I'd run a child protection inquiry. But from that, some, because it was in the social services field, I ended up being Deputy Public Guardian for the State of Queensland and Acting Public Guardian. And many of your listeners will know that that office in uh, the UK also uh, is the decision maker of last resort for people mm -hmm. with adults with impaired decision making capacity. So as I said, I got in there from the child protection angle, but once I got in there, I just found it a fascinating field. I, I found it one of the most fascinating fields of law I'd ever encountered and I also found it um, very engaging in terms of the the disadvantaged and disorganized lives of the clients because they were people who didn't have family members to look after them to be their guardians to avoid guardianship um, so they really had strangers coming into their life making quite intimate decisions and it seemed like a very important role but perhaps like many roles in um, community services undervalued too yeah yeah, no, no, completely, completely. And, and I think we may well end up kind of thinking during parts of this discussion about support and the, the role of people, you know, where they've got different forms of support around. But the, the reason why I wanted you to come into the shed today is in relation to a book which you've just published, um, Mental Capacity, Dignity and the Power of International Human Rights. So just help us through what, I mean, it's a fascinating title and I really want to unpick all sorts of bits of it, but, but just, you know, how did you come to write this book? Well, as I said, it did emanate from my work at the Public Guardian and there were two aspects of that probably and that was that we were dealing with clients with multiple disadvantage often, especially the ones that landed on my desk as head of the agency. They would be the ones who were leaving prison at 4 o'clock on a Friday. We get a call at quarter to 4 despite trying to engage corrective services to at an earlier point that someone needs to pick them up, that their father has a domestic violence order out against them because they have a dementia, a 40-year-old with, with AIDS-related dementia, and we have nowhere for them to live, you know. Mm. And we and the service providers, they I think they were maybe a bit worried about the AIDS-related dementia, making sure he took his medication, that there was no sexual disinhibition with the dementia. So that's just one case. And all of those seem to land on my desk. So that was one reason. And just sort of then learning about support decision-making and that it would infringe someone's human rights to make a decision in that context, as an example. 
you know, it really raised a lot more complexities. And the hard thing for us that, you know, could we make any decision actually, because I think in that case we did, we found a hostel who kind kindly took him. Um, but um, it's a very vexed scenario. So the idea of choice and control when someone is at disadvantage coming out of prison, dementia, uh, a young person, family um, is disengaged or engaged but limited in what they can do and um, there wasn't a lot of accommodation options for him. So that was sort of was those ones I remember but yeah. not untypical in terms of multiple disadvantages of it often multiple cognitive impairments in terms of ID, intellectual disability. Once you've got an intellectual disability, you're more likely to have an acquired brain injury. You've got both of those, you're actually more likely to develop trauma. So it was really that. And the second reason was that um, people talk about human rights a lot, which is great, but it's in the it's in the vernacular a lot and it's in our public discourse a lot. It's on the popular news a lot. And there's a lot of talk about people claiming their rights and having their human rights infringed, you know, whether it's the right to be able to drink late at a venue or consumer rights. And these somehow get in the popular discourse transformed or transposed into human rights. And so that it becomes a sort of a my right to do what I want, you know, my right to hate speech, that sort of thing. And I just wanted to do something that sort of was a bit nuanced that brought up those complexities of human rights and human rights particularly not being the right to be left alone like our man coming out of prison. And so the book uh, looks at socioeconomic rights and mm -hmm. the importance of socioeconomic rights, which are not about leaving people alone. They're about positive supports, uh, positive services, choice of services. And I wanted to, even though the welfare state in both of our countries has, has suffered some um, decline, to reinstate the idea of social rights as rights, not as charity, even social security, not as charity. It's a right, and you can claim yeah. it as a right. So they were the two things, the two spurs for me to sort of go down this path with the root, with, with the book. Interesting. And I have to say, I think that second limb is is so important. And one of the things I like the most about, I mean, I, I like all of the book, one of the things I think is, is really interesting in the book is the way, I mean, really digging into actually, if we mean socioeconomic rights as actually meaning rights, well, what are the implications? And, and as you say, they do start, I mean, it's almost literally opening doors. I mean, if you've got a right mm -hmm. to say, you know, I need to be accommodated or a right to say, you know, in order to meet my right to health or something like that, that is literally a right where you're saying that means you state have got to do something as opposed to, merely yes. saying, you know, you're free to do whatever you want, but we're not actually going to help, as it were. Yes, that's right. And I know we've got a, a Human Rights Act in Queensland here, which I won't go into, but all the submissions on Human Rights Acts in Australia all the social services agencies always lobby hard for socioeconomic rights to go into those instruments and, yeah. and they never do. And yet it's time and time again because they're the ones who realise that there is a lack of services and there are a lack of services. And uh, as I say in the book, we've recently or fairly recently uh, brought in sort of individualised budgeting and individualised personalised services in disability sector, which I believe they've had in the UK and other places for years, and that's all premised on the idea of choice and control and was very much designed for a, a disability type of a physical disability kind of model. And um, even though a large percentage of people with disability do have uh, cognitive disabilities, 
it was only sort of as an afterthought that um, this was brought in. And that's actually led in Australia to more um, guardianship appointments because now everything's done on a contractual basis. It used to be sort of grant-based. Grant based. So it's problematic that in this human rights environment that uh, guardianship is actually increasing. While my book in some ways or definitely defends guardianship or substitute decision-making as a, a, a route of last resort, it does, and I do actually um, agree and advocate for supported decision-making um, until until that somehow it will either lead to harm or um, is just not possible on the facts of the situation. So um, choice and control is needs to be thought about what it means for people with cognitive disabilities. Yeah, no, it's a very. I mean, we 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 we've gone through the same thing thing here with direct payments, which is a similar yeah. similar model. And as a, but that, that, I mean, it's at one level an, an immensely important and not just appealing but important idea of choice and control. And it sits with you know the right to independent living and the see and the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and everything. But it we also are navigating the fact that it it. It's nuanced if you've got somebody where you're going, well, actually, they don't seem to be in a position to make their own choice. Well, who's doing it for them? So that, yes, no, it's it is very nuanced. So one of the things I mean, one of the sort of prisms through which the book looks at stuff is, I mean, it is very much the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And I'm just yeah. wondering, um, I, I, in a way, I don't want to. Uh, it's difficult because in a way I don't want to assume lots of knowledge on the part of people, but I want, you know, I don't yeah. want to assume that, that people have, you know, actually necessarily, um, well, there will be some people listening to this who are really very familiar with it. Can I just ask you for your take on Article 12 of the CRPD? So that's the right to legal capacity. So just, you know, what you what you understand by it and what you, you know, what you what you would be banging the drum for, say, in your old role as, as, as acting public guardian. You're saying, well, what's Article 12 mean for us? Yeah, well, Article 12 uh, gives people with disability, including people with cognitive disability, the right to enjoy legal capacity on an equal basis with others. And in this context, it's interpreted as the right to make one's own decisions about one's own life, which is something we all value and very much a cornerstone of our, of our liberal uh, philosophy and, and democracies. And then the other art, uh, part of 12, 12.3 um, provides that states must provide supports for people in order to exercise their legal capacity. And this has been widely agreed that um, the term supported decision-making has come into use. And there's no um, set practice or legal model for supported decision-making, but it's widely agreed that it involves having a mentor, maybe a close family friend, to assist you in understanding. And once you can understand, enabling you to make and communicate a decision on certain aspects of your life such as accommodation and it's very important because historically of course people with intellectual disabilities in particular were not allowed to make decisions there was institutionalization was the dominant model and in that context and also in today's context where people in those situations are still very much uh, patronized um, dismissed stigmatized or segregated and I think we just need to acknowledge that that's ongoing despite uh, improvements um, it's very important to um, ensure that their capabilities are supported and improved as much as possible. And um, supported decision-making is a way of doing that. And supported decision-making did originally start even before the CRPD in the context of people with intellectual disability. And um, But now, 
and you can see in that context um, how important it is to ensure a maximum flourishing for that person. There are now different contexts in which it's applied or considered quite rightly, and that is with age dementia, um, mental illness, people with psychosis, and also acquired brain injury. So these, perhaps the position of age dementia highlights most um, pertinently why supported decision-making um, will not work in all cases because that is a, a degenerative condition of cognition, of, of gradual uh, cognitive decline. So it's, um, but support decision-making in that context is now being used and the ethos behind it to make sure that a diagnosis of dementia does not make you feel like you're no longer a person anymore and that within the earlier stages of dementia, which can last a long time, you really do have as much autonomy and control over your life as possible. So that's what that's what Article 12 means to me and I think to a lot of people. And as a last resort, you make a, you can substitute, you can make a decision on their own behalf. I could, I could go into the mix of socioeconomic and civil political rights if you'd like me to. Well, I think, I, I, no, I mean, yes, I do, um, but but only for time, because um, I, I just want to make sure that we've, I mean, I think that the, I think the, the fact it blends civil, traditional civil, political and, and socioeconomic rights, I think is one of the things I think your book is most interesting on, is actually really drawing out the way it's the two crash together. Um, mm. So I think people, I, I really strongly recommend people who really want to kind of think that through to, to have a look. But I suppose it's, or to get the book and read that bit carefully, I suppose what I'm really interested in is, is, is exploring with you, you almost, as a throwaway, just at the end of that said, you know, supported decision-making up to the point where they can't, and then we do something else. Yeah. And it's that bit there, because obviously, the, as we know, there the are endless, and in some ways not hugely productive arguments about, you know, is do you, at what point do you say and what's the legitimacy of saying the point the person can't make that decision? But I'm just kind of interested in your take in, in say the person with advanced dementia or the age-related dementia is getting more advanced. You've done everything you can to support, you know, what's the framework? It may even be as much as anything else, an ethical framework. What's the framework through which you're seeing that person you know, you can no yeah. longer support, you know, how do we then think, how do we then, what mode of thinking do we then apply at that point? Right. Well, in that the book, as you know, I look at dignity as a way of recognising personhood. Yeah. Just on that, I mentioned before how we, we do think of people as losing their personhood when their cognition declines. And as I said, historically and even currently, people with intellectual disabilities being non-persons. So, and the reason why legal capacity, and some, some people are, are very keen to argue that legal capacity should apply in more cases. I'm not of that ilk. And um, most, you know, and I don't want to get into that argument. But the idea that legal capacity should apply in all cases is really born out of a privileging of the value of autonomy in our society. As I said, we all do value our autonomy and I'm not suggesting we should devalue, but I don't think it's the, the value that should be privileged um, above all others in our lives or in terms of our well-being or in terms of our rights. It is the basis of civil and political rights, um, but autonomy itself is a very disputed and contested concept. Kant said it was the right or to, it was the way we lived our lives in accordance with our own moral values and 
rationally thought through our values without influence from others to valorize Kant. But anyway, that's that's basically the values and the mode of practice that is being privileged when people say everyone should have legal capacity because if they don't have legal capacity, this is the the corollary, the same part of the same argument, they won't be recognised as persons because Kant, and I think even recognised in our our liberal tradition around us, as we say that people with dementia don't have personhood anymore, they're former persons, we recognise that once you've lost rationality and autonomy, we tend to think of people as non-persons. And that can flow on to being stigmatised, segregated, um, discriminated against. So what I suggest, and there's a lot of philosophy, and I'm a lawyer dabbling with philosophy and had a few mentors there, that's considered this, um, what is some called, it's referred to as the outlier problem in philosophy. So a lot of people find that language um, offensive, so I don't use it in the book actually. But um, someone like Peter Singer will say, well, you know, maybe rationality is not the basis of our personhood because that excludes too many people who aren't, you know, very rational. Maybe it's the capacity for sentience. And he will say because, um, and he will sort of include dogs in the same moral framework, say that we have the same moral moral obligations to dogs because they have sentience. And um, people with disability don't like that because, um they, it's they've historically been compared with animals and treated yeah. like dogs, we might say. Plus, how is that even sort of comprehensible, I think even Eva Kite says, to sort of, you know, what does it mean to think like a dog? I've got a, a dog. He's he's very smart. He's smarter than me sometimes, but he's not a person, you know. He's not a human. So, you, you know, so some of the people who advocate the universal legal capacity and a lot of the disability advocates say, well, be we have to say everyone's autonomous and real because we have to realize that everyone has a valuable life and they have values and things they want to achieve in their life. And I sort of say, and I'm not the first person to say it, but I'm the first, I've got some bring some things to an together in a novel way. I'm sort of saying, well, we need to find a different, more inclusive base of personhood. And I say dignity. And dignity has been thrown around um, by a lot of people, it's been criticized by a lot of people as meaningless, and it is a challenge. But then I draw on um, philosophy, commentary and some jurisprudence to promote, advocate what I call a concept of five-dimensional dignity to try and endeavour to put some sort of uh, determinative meaning around dignity so that we can value all humans as having human dignity in a way that dogs don't. Dog must have dog dignity. So that's yeah. how ethically I approach um, the idea of, and justify or explain how we can make decisions for other people, apparently denying their autonomy but not denying their personhood. A corollary of that is I think that, and other people have said this, such as um, the Essex Autonomy Project, I think that we need to recognise that as a matter of fact, some people can't make autonomous decisions. And I think that if we don't recognise the uh, concrete situation in people's lives, uh, like the man coming out of prison, um, we're not going to get those social responses that we need or that they need to enable them to have their human rights upheld and to live inclusive lives. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, I mean, you and I in a way are both 
well, I'm going to say biased, I think is probably the right word. You, you and I have both um, come at this, I think, from relatively similar perspectives. And I think part of it might be that you and I both in different capacities do very diff- have done very difficult cases. I mean, you've done them as the public guardian, you know, decision maker of last resort. I've done them doing cases, arguing quite often on behalf of the person. So the, the, the paradigm hard cases where mm. the kind of, the argument for that we need everyone to have legal capacity, otherwise people aren't recognised as people arguments, find, which are, is so understandable, find very difficult to deal with. You know, because they are very, very difficult to deal with within a framework, because the second we allow any crack in this armour of saying, actually, this person can't they make their own decision, everyone will just trample, you know, go run straight through and say, well, actually, it's a difficult situation, don't they can do it. And you sort of... And it's in it, but I think it's coming from that very from dealing with those very hard cases. I have to one of the things that I think it 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 really did resonate with me in the book is build up from you know recognizing those hard cases. How can we think about them in a way which really grapples, which really grapples with, as you say, this person is a person. How can we respond to this person as a person? Hmm. Can I just tease out the dignity thing for a minute? Um, yes, we're, we're we're relatively short on time, which is a shame because there's so many things I'd love to talk to you about. But um, I mean, having done cases involving dignity, I think I, I I I will just say, just so you get the chance to kind of come back at me, does it sometimes not? Is it not sometimes a word which is capable of being filled with more or less whatever meaning you want? You know, if if you want to say, you know, that you know, the dignified death, for instance, depends very much on your standpoint on, you know, whether you think it's, you know, how you're conceptualizing what death is, as opposed to necessarily conceptualizing what it might mean for that person. So just sort of help us with, because you've talked about the five dimensions, but maybe just flesh it out a tiny bit so we get a sense of this is not, I don't want to use the word slogan, but I don't, you know, it's something which has got a concrete meaning to us, for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as you say, dignity, I mean, it's been described as a placeholder in the UN conventions and the the UN um, Declaration of Human Rights originally because people couldn't agree on things, so they sort of stuck dignity in there and is indeed invoked, uh, for instance, I suppose, with um, assisted dying, you know, uh, by uh, proponents on both sides of that assisted dying debate as to what dignity involves in death. How am I approaching dignity? And other people have approached dignity is... Um, autonomy is very much an abstraction and people have started saying it you know did did that did that Kantian man ever really exist did he ever walk down the street making decisions left right and center without thinking about other people you know well it's an abstraction you know and the feminists have sort of brought that out more than more than anything in the last sort of 40 years and the disability in fact the disability scholarship has uh, borrowed a lot from feminism or 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 um, developed feminist scholarship a lot in the disability space with concepts like relational autonomy. And so autonomy is an abstraction, whereas dignity, I argue, and other people argue, is an embodied concept and operates sort of from the concrete lives of people with disabilities upwards. I also point out that dignity occurs more in the disability convention than any other human rights convention, that it's a pervasive uh, word or concept in human rights that people use the word dignity or, and refer to dignity a lot in the context of people with disability including in the jurisprudence some of which is mainly British uh, there's examples of that and that 
I argue that, and it's also in some constitutions, the South African constitution, which was very much um, drafted in a human rights context, post-apartheid context. And I argue that because of all of that, we actually, it, the convention demands us infusing that with some determinacy, determinacy yep. the concept of dignity. And that my my book is sort of a, a step on that on that important project. And, and the common law does, after all, work from, uh, you know, the embodied lives, the concrete lives of people upwards, as you say, and that's what you feel when you've got a hard case, that it's about the concrete lives upwards. And, you know, I think in Australia we have a lot of tribunals on guardianship cases and there's not a lot of jurisprudence and I, that hampers um, that, hampers that uh, growth of, of important law that looks that, that looks at the lives of people because no law and this frustrates me sometimes when people want to get more and more specific about about you know when do we start substitute decision when don't we and put it in a law so that'll make it work it's very hard to do that until you've got the facts before you to think of every single situation so that's it's it's a valid it's a valid criticism of dignity but there has been a lot as I've gone through in the book a lot more interest in it in recent years. And I, and I argue that there's potential there. And the the starting point for that is autonomy doesn't give us any more certainty. And we could, you know, talk about that forever. But um, I do make that point in Chapter 4 before I go into dignity. Yeah. No, and I think that's, I mean, I think we'll have to draw it to an end here. But I think, um, which is such a shame because there are so many things to discuss. But no, I think I I, I like the way of, of I mean, we kind of, we might have run ourselves into the ground in terms of autonomy, in terms of discussions. Dignity may still not quite have got, well, A, we haven't necessarily done that. And then B, as you say, if it appears more often in the CRPD than any other convention, it's on everybody to actually imbue it with a meaning, like an actual proper meaning. So, yeah. No, brilliant. So I, I'm going to put a link to the book on the on the page with which this chat is associated. And it's it's not the world's longest book, but it's what's so great is each it really is very detailed on the bits where it needs to be detailed in terms of you know for instance CRPD is as meshing conventional civil rights, socioeconomic rights, but also has got exactly the sort of gritty stuff to provoke thought, certainly in relation to you know how we run out of space on autonomy or, or where do we go with dignity. So. Thank you very much. Well, A, Julia, for writing it, and then B, for coming to talk about it with me uh, today. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Alex. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Appreciate it.